coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. The thing about the Quran, one guy, one uh, imam who was a follower of Jesus, a mullah from South Asia, he said, you know, the Quran speaks 96 times about Jesus. Only four times does it mention Muhammad. But the Quran, when I read it cover to cover, it has no plan of salvation. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that deals with my sins. But when I read the Injil, the New Testament, I see that it has a, a solution for my sinfulness. Jesus is God's answer to my sinfulness, my lostness. That's profound, and it's unique in Islamic thought to have a way out of this vicious cycle mm -hmm. of works and uncertainty, right? I mean, it is, it, yeah. You know, the fatalism, the boundaries of uncertainty are are painful things to live with for most. Yes, one of the Achilles heels of Islam is that it does not have a solution for our sinfulness, our lostness. It just pleads for, you know, God's mercy at the day of judgment. And when you ask them, who's going to be at that judgment? Well, Jesus is the judge. <laughs> so to be prepared to meet Jesus uh, before you meet him ultimately has quite a draw. But these are things that we need to understand about Islam because business as usual, what we've done historically in the West has not been effective mm. at reaching Islam. We've been profoundly ineffective, but something is happening today and we need to learn today what God is using to draw Muslims to faith in Jesus so that we can better align ourselves with the Holy Spirit's activity and be used by him. Absolutely. David, I want to get to know you. First of all, I want to let everybody know where we are. <laughs> We're at your house in Larkspur, Colorado. It's not a regular house, is it? Talk about this house that we're in right now. Yeah, we're in a little cabin. It's, uh, it's not very big. It's 20 foot by 10 foot. But it looks out over uh, the valley here. It's, we're at 7,400 foot elevation. And we've got a view of Pikes Peak that is uh, magnificent. You can see 100 miles in any direction from here. And so it's, uh, we call it the writer's cabin. It's, it's supposed to guilt me into doing more writing. <laughs> Take away my excuses. I think my jaw has been on the floor ever since I walked in here. It's just absolutely so harmonious with the landscape, and it's got all of the feels of Colorado. I don't know if anybody's listening from other parts of the country or world, but it's got all the feels of beautiful views, grand vistas, and I expect to see a herd of buffalo come over one of the hills here pretty we soon. We do have elk and antelope and... Uh, mule deer, and coyotes. And there's a moose head up on the wall that uh, <laughs> my son found out in the forest and brought home to me. Amazing. Uh, so it's, uh, you picked a good day to be here. This is probably the prettiest day in February you could imagine. It sure is beautiful. So, David, I want everybody to understand a little bit about your background and where you come from. We were just talking before we started recording about Arkansas. Is that where you're from originally? Yeah, I uh, was born and raised in Arkansas, small town. Uh, my dad was a school superintendent. My mother was a nurse. And uh, we grew up uh, going to First Baptist Church in Camden, Arkansas, and uh, worked in little churches around southern Arkansas. 
Went to a Baptist university, Washtenaw Baptist University, and uh, worked in smack over Arkansas. Yeah. <laughs> Among uh, among other small name. town places, I love the reality of name places like that. Mm-hmm. You were telling me that Smackover comes from a third hand translation of French, yeah, for the region. The French right? call so. it Sumac Covert, which meant this place is covered with sumac. Don't go there. <laughs> and the English apparently didn't understand the French, just and set up a little over. colony there and discovered oil. Oh. As would happen, wow. and it became an oil boom town back Amazing. in the twenties. Amazing. And your, your career has taken you so many different places, mm-hmm. um, so much of what we understand about what's happening in the uh, Dar es Dar, so much of what we understand is happening in the House of Islam, the worldwide Islamic mm. kingdoms, I guess. You know, you've done so much of your study on that. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how your journey in ministry got you to that place and, and where your heart led you. Yeah, uh, that's a good question, and I'll try not to make it too long. But I think growing up in southern Arkansas uh, is was, was wonderful, wonderful people, wonderful place. I'm still a Razorback fan, you know, but <laughs> it uh, you always wonder what's on the other side. And so I always had a yearning to see the bigger picture. Uh, lived in Japan when I was 19 as an exchange student. Wow. Uh, at 25, my uh, high school sweetheart, to whom I had married, uh, Sonia and I moved to Hong Kong, lived there for a couple of years. And uh, we had been called into Christian ministry. And as we began to see the big picture of the world, I think we naturally asked, you know, where, where are the front lines? Where is the unfinished task? Mm. And uh, we certainly saw it uh, in the global arena. And within that global arena, I think uh, George Otis called uh, Islam the last of the giants. Mm. And we were both uh, fascinated by that challenge and at the same time, uh, recognized that it was massive and that Islam itself um, was the one great anti-Christian religion. It was the only world religion that had been designed to defeat uh, Christianity. Uh, You think about all the great world religions, Judaism, Islam, uh, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, they all precede Christianity. Mm. Islam emerged in the full light of Christianity and therefore was really tailor-made to address, to counter, to combat and defeat Christianity. And it had, as I studied church history, I, I found it had done an excellent job. <laughs> it, had, yeah. it had defeated Christianity in all of its various forms everywhere it encountered it for about 14 centuries. Wow. So uh, that, uh, I mean, if you're a missionary type, and we felt very much committed to the missional life, where else would you want to be but uh, then in the Muslim world? And so that drew us, and uh, we found ourselves engaging that part of the world. Yeah. So where was your first missionary assignment, if you will, in the, in the Muslim world? In the Muslim world, we took on the assignment of Libyan Muslims. Mm. And at the time, this was in the early 1990s, you couldn't live in Libya as an American. Libya was under sanctions so uh, we assumed the role of non-residential missionaries. And that meant we found places that were strategic outside Libya where mm. we could have an impact. So we lived in Egypt initially. I lived in Alexandria, studied Arabic there. And then uh, after uh, spending some time learning Egyptian and classical Arabic, we moved over to Tunisia, the other side of Libya. Interesting, yeah. Lived there for a couple of years and began to find 
that there were uh, diaspora and, and transient Libyan communities coming and going through Egypt, through Malta, through Tunisia. And partnering with the broader evangelical world, we had uh, uh, the privilege of, of having a wonderful network of partners from crew and and at the time they were called Campus Crusade. That's right. I'm... YWAM, Operation Mobilization, <laughs> sure. uh, uh, Ibra Radio, uh, Far East Broadcasting, Transworld Radio, just all kinds of groups, national partners from the Sudan and uh, Korea and uh, Egypt. Even though we were not able to live inside Libya, working with this broader array of internationals who were coming and going in Libya all the time, hmm. we were able to have a, an impact. Now, was this like before Qaddafi or was this during Qaddafi? This is the height of Qaddafi. Height of Qaddafi. Yeah. Those mm-hmm. were challenging times. And obviously you had to have like creative access and, you know, mm-hmm. ways to use technologies that were emerging. Did you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the kinds of things now that are more common, I think, where you have uh, broadcasts that are going into a country and then you have other people who can follow up on it, mm-hmm. then people inside the country. We were surprised to find that even though Libya was closed to Americans and Western Europeans, it had one foreigner living in the country for every four Libyans. Is that right? It had one of the largest uh, expat, expat populations yeah. wow. in the world because of the oil economy. Mm. So you had hundreds of thousands of Egyptians and Sudanese and Koreans and Palestinians, even Chinese and North Koreans, all kinds of people were working there. Wow. And so what you had to do is get beyond your American ethnocentrism, <laughs> thinking that if we can't do it, it can't be done, mm. to recognizing this is God's work. Yeah. And the body of Christ is vast and diverse. And if we will humble ourselves and serve the body of Christ to mm. do the work of Christ, we can accomplish the mission of Christ, yeah. even in, in difficult, restricted access places. Yeah, for sure. Were you involved in, in sort of the church planting uh, kind of thing? Or was this mm-hmm. like a evangelism? Or were you working with existing churches? How did, what was the... Yeah, I was with the International Mission Board of Southern Baptist, and we had sort of a mantra that we believe in evangelism that results in churches. We believe that churches were really the place for discipleship, for maturation to take place. And so we were never satisfied with just evangelism, although that's always the beginning. And so we worked with groups that were primarily evangelists, but uh, our aim was always to see churches planted and then to see those churches multiplied. Sure. Well, they must... Churches must look very different in places where it's probably, mm. especially conversion from Islam would be, you know, against the law. What yeah. did those look like? Maybe some stories from those <laughs> kinds of times. Yeah, you know, it was... We're a, talking about, you know, we're back in the, the 80s, 90s. Yeah, 80s the 90s, 90s right? right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Libya was an interesting thing. It was, um, on the one hand, we found uh, a number of churches thriving inside Libya that uh, were not Libyan. So, for example, the Egyptian Orthodox Church had a congregation in uh, Tripoli that was numbered over 10,000 members. It's massive. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and uh, they were allowed to worship freely because that's who they were. They had immigrated from—they weren't immigrants. They were uh, diaspora workers. Right. And so they worshiped freely with the condition that don't mess with the Libyan Muslims. You don't proselytize. In fact, we could even find that if an Egyptian Muslim came to Christ in Egypt, and they may be severely persecuted in Egypt, if they wanted sanctuary, they could relocate to Libya. 
Is that right? Because Libya wow. didn't really care about these Egyptians. They were keeping their own people in check, and they recognized that these immigrants had all kinds of different religions, and so they didn't mess with them. Wow. So it was a, it was a curious sort of thing. So there were a lot of Christians actually in Libya of uh, various nationalities, sub-Saharan Africa. You know, one of Gaddafi's things was to be a champion for liberation in, mm. in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So you had a lot of Ghanaians and others, Nigerians who were in the country, again, working related to the oil economy. And many of them were, were Christians. Yeah. But what we found was to reach the Libyan Muslims really took a special focus. I was working with Crew at the time as one of our partners, and they had a broadcast going into Libya. And the director of Crew's work in that part of the world, wonderful, godly man, lived in the Paris suburbs. I won't mention his mm-hmm. name unless you mm-hmm. want his name mentioned. But anyway, he told me, he said, David, he said, we've been broadcasting in that area. He said, we probably have hundreds of thousands of Libyans who are in correspondence with us, who are now followers of Jesus. And he said, if you are interested, he said, I'll share that information with you. You can organize on-the-ground follow-up. So I said, absolutely. I went up to his offices near Paris, and he downloaded his database. God bless him, shared it all with me. We went through it line by line, and we found that all of those respondents were not Libyans. Interesting. They were from Nigeria and Ghana and other places. And we found, I think, out of the thousands of respondents, I think we found something like 19 that had names that could very well have been Libyans. Yeah. And we were able to target where they were, locate them, and then link them up with radiant believers that we knew that also lived in those same towns. Wow. So it was a creative connection. But what we found, what that revealed to us was it's not about geography, it's about people. Mm-hmm. And you may think we're covering Libya But if, in fact, you're not taking the time to parse out who's responding to this message, then you may not be reaching them at all. You've got to be narrow cast in your focus there. I mean, what a challenge to think about, you know, defining the targets, if you will, the Mm -hmm. people who are native, indigenous Mm -hmm. Libyans versus others that are outside of the country. But eventually, you know, we're going to get back to church planning and church planning as it as it relates to the entire Islamic world. But eventually, your focus began to shift to Islam at large, right? Yeah. From an academic standpoint and from other practical missional uh, experiences. What were some of the motives? What were some of the stories behind you wanting to bring your attention uh, on a broader level? You know, my my focus was still always. Uh, I don't mean to sound overly pietistic. It was the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which led to the Great Commission. And when you look at the Great Commission, Islam is standing squarely in the way of its fulfillment. (laughs) So it wasn't honestly a particular uh, fascination with Islam or love of Islam or anything like that, or love of Muslims even. It was a love of God, Mm. love of Jesus, and then finding that he loved these people so much that Jesus died for them. One of the things I used to tell people when we were advocating for the evangelization of Libya, you know, Libya didn't have a very good reputation. They had brought down Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. All those people killed. Uh, Libya was not only implicated, it was really clear that they had done it. It was government-driven, so a lot of people hated Libya, hated Libyans. They were under international sanctions. They couldn't fly in and out of the country for decades And uh, I would tell them, you know, the first person who was 
washed in the blood of Jesus was a Libyan. Hmm. And they would say, what are you talking about? I said, don't you remember when Jesus was on the Via Dolorosa, on the way of sorrows to Calvary, mm-hmm. he stumbled and fell. And it was Simon of Cyrene who went and shouldered the cross and put it on his shoulders and no doubt had the blood of Jesus pour over him. Wow. And were it not for him, maybe Jesus couldn't have made it yeah. to Golgotha. So when we think about Libyans, recognize that you can go all the way back. Cyrene had a large Jewish population, Cyrenaica, and uh, it's Benghazi is its capital, always has been. So we think about the atrocities, the horrors. Yeah. Just remember that Jesus sees through those to people like Simon of Cyrene, who was there with him and for him when he needed someone. Wow. And it hopefully changes people's paradigm. It changes their thinking. One of the books that was circulating around Libya when we were there is written in Arabic was called um, John Mark of Libya, I think was the name of it. And it was a biography of uh, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Right. And the tradition was, you know, he was the first uh, bishop of uh, Alexandria and North Africa is what it was called. And so there's schools. My son went to a school in Alexandria called uh, Kuliat Marmorkos, the College of St. Mark. And uh, the Libyans will tell you, and the Egyptians will tell you, yeah, Mark was born over in Derna in Libya. And Derna is right there on the coast in Cyrenaica. He would have been part of that uh, Cyrenaican Jewish community. Derna is also the place where the uh, uh, ISIS... Uh, Caliphate. It's where, it's yeah. where they killed those yeah. uh, Egyptian on the uh, martyrs on the beach. It was uh-huh. in Derna. Mm-hmm. So right there in that hometown. So this book was circulating. Libyans were proud to say... Uh, Mark the Evangelist. That was the name of it, actually. Mark the Evangelist. And it was a story. had fic- photos and pictures and stories about, you know, a lot of it maybe was apocryphal, but he grew up here, and they were proud to say that he was, in fact, a Libyan. Interesting. I had never heard that before. Yeah. I've encountered a number of stories of the tr- traditions and such, but I've never heard that one before, and that's fascinating. Yeah. it's, it's a, When you peel back the layers there, it goes back so far, there's just a lot of amazing yeah, I can tell you stories about Libya for a long time. Well, well, you know, it's funny because you know, anywhere in this region, you know, the North African Middle East region, I have found some uh, people used to explain or say to me things like, "Aren't you afraid to show your faith there?" And you know, and I guess there's a certain, there's definitely some fearsome kinds of elements of Islam, and mm-hmm. and much of our mental picture of Islam is colored by you know, the terrorist activities and various other things that, mm. that do that. But, but what I found, particularly in some of these cultures that are the most scary, is that they are so willing to talk about faith. They're mm. so willing to talk about mm. religion. Now, I think, you know, you have to keep it at a certain level, and it takes, I'm sure you'll explain, takes a lot of time, patience, prayer, and resiliency but being open to what God is doing in that part of the world, it's amazing. They, they'll talk about faith so often because it's such a dominant characteristic of yeah. Islamic society. They're surprised when somebody from the West actually talks about mm-hmm. religion as in a serious way. Yeah, because um, it is such a pervasive part of life in North Africa and the Middle East. And uh, we've learned to compartmentalize, I think, taking Ben Franklin's adage that you don't talk about your religion and taxes, 
or maybe those are the only two things that are certain. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we kind of compartmentalize it over there. It's in every conversation. and uh, It has to be. Yeah. And yeah. so you want to be ready to give a reason for the hope within you. Sure. And, sure. Uh, so you eventually moved on to study more about the movement, the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, you know, what led you in that direction and then, you know, where we can begin to hone in on some of the countries that where we work uh, with the Joshua Fund and, and some of the other elements mm-hmm. of Islam across across the epicenter. Yeah, we had, uh, when we were in North Africa, it was the 90s, uh, I tell people we learned hundreds of ways not to win Muslims to Christ. <laughs> we tried everything you know we knew to try, and uh, they were just tough, resistant, difficult. A decade later, I was still with the Southern Baptist International Mission Board, and we found ourselves, uh, I was directing work in South Asia. So we relocated to India, and it was like something had happened. This was around 2002, 2003. In fact, I began the week before 9-11. Was, I came in, one of the first jobs I had was evacuating our personnel out of <laughs> Afghanistan and Pakistan and places. But as the years went by, we had more and more... Uh, Muslim background believer partners. Most of them were coming out of Bangladesh, and they had names like Muhammad and Islam, and they were Jihad. out. Yeah, <laughs> I had, had dinner with a guy named Jihad. <laughs> they were going out to the mosque and sharing gospel portions and Jesus films and the New Testaments and uh, talking about dreams and visions, and they were leading Muslims to Christ. Mm. And something had happened. Something had changed in a decade. And furthermore, we were hearing reports of movements in Central Asia, in uh, North Africa, in West Africa, among Fulani, in Indonesia, uh, in various corners of the Muslim world. There were these reports of not ones and twos, but hundreds and then thousands. And, you know, I went to the University of Chicago. I've got a doctorate from there, and and they kind of teach you up there to be skeptical. (laughs) So I had trouble believing these numbers, but I did see them in the Bangladesh context. But I had this kind of running list of about 25 rumors of movements that I had heard about. And previously, I'd had a role with the International Mission Board. I was associate vice president for global strategy. So I had the whole world. And I could go anywhere and explore these things. But now I was anchored in South Asia, which still had the largest Muslim population in the world. Mm -hmm. But I was was dying to know what was going on in these other places. So uh, later, when I I took an assignment here in Colorado working with the broader evangelical world, I was contacted one day by uh, uh, Ted Essler, actually, who was at the time with Pioneers. He's now with Missio Nexus, the largest association of missionaries in the world. And Ted said, David, he said, you know, I'm working with a foundation that's interested in in sharing the gospel with Muslims, but um, we're getting reports of so many Muslim movements to Christ. He said, but... He said, I worked in Bosnia. He said, you worked with Libyans. I'm not sure I really believe these reports. It sounds... Because you know how hard it was. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, are these real? Are they evangelistically reported? (laughs) And uh, we, uh, both of us were skeptical. And I told him, I said, you know, I've got the same questions you do. He said, well, would you be interested? Would you be willing to go and find out what's happening? And I said, you know, it's kind of been on my bucket list for a while. I'd I'd like to. And anyway, working with this foundation, working with the International Mission Board, I set aside three years to compile lists of all the movements that were rumored out there and then to go and see for myself. 
And I had a list of questions. I put together my little, here's what I want to know. It all centered around the, the core question of what did God use to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ? Tell me your story. Hmm. And then out from that, concentric circles of questions. So you went to individuals in each of these places who had come from yeah. a Muslim background. And were part of a movement. And were part of a movement. Mm-hmm. And you asked those basic questions. What did yeah. you find? Well, it was fascinating. Initially, when I went, I was I had vetted these questions with some friends who were with a major research organization, secular organization in Washington, D.C. I, I had gone up to Gordon Conwell and talked to uh, Todd Johnson, who mm-hmm. uh, does the World Christian Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. I talked with um, Dudley Woodbury down at Fuller and just and Martin Marty at the University of Chicago, Philip Jenkins down at uh, Baylor. And I, I made sure the questions were coherent, were getting to the point, and that this was on track before we went out and went to ask the questions. I made sure I, I didn't just interview Muslims who had come to Christ. Okay. So I set a, a, a goal. I wanted to dip into these movements of at least a thousand baptized believers. Mm-hmm. Now I say baptized, not because I'm a Baptist, <laughs> but because for a Muslim to be baptized, huge deal. it means I'm willing to die for this. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to just go and say, who are fans of Jesus? Tell me how much you love Jesus. Because, you know, every Muslim loves what they know of Jesus, which is he was a prophet that preceded Muhammad. Uh, I wanted to know those who had really been changed enough by Jesus that they were willing to die for him. So if there was a movement of at least a thousand baptized believers, I would go into that movement and try to gather at least a dozen interviews. In some cases, I would get 30, 40, 50. A few places I found entire dissertations with hundreds of interviews have been done. And um, I was able to tap into those. I visited uh, uh, 44 different movements in 39 different countries, gathered over a thousand interviews. That core question, what did God use to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ? Tell me your story, really becomes the epicenter. And the thing that struck me, Carl, and the reason I went back and told that background information was that initially I was encouraged to get data, gather data Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and have your Excel spreadsheet with your data questions so that you can compare data all over the world and you can get trends and analysis and all this. So I started out very academic, very academic, very sociologically uh, structured. And I began in Indonesia as getting these interviews. I remember I was talking to this guy and I had all my 39 questions or so, and I had all the information plotted out, and I was typing it in. It was all being spoken by him in Indonesian, translated, and then I was transcribing it. And after I was, as I was typing away, the fellow turns to the translator, this Muslim background believer turns to the translator and says, uh, ask him if he would like to hear my story. And uh, I said, sure, you know, knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. So I was typing away, making sure my numbers were correct. And he starts telling his story, and the translator spontaneously translating it. And it just grabbed me about how God had reached into his life, into the unique situation in his life and touched him and changed him and revealed himself. And I stopped and I said, wait, 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 do you mind if I record this? And the guy says, go ahead, knock yourself out. So (laughs) I recorded and from then on, I recorded everyone that I could because I realized in the numbers and the data, I was missing the brilliance of what God had done. Mm. God had touched each one of these people uniquely and differently. On the one hand, it was exactly the same. 
same God, same Holy Spirit, same Jesus, same gospel, no blurring around the edges, but the unique individual touch that God took the time to do in each one of those lives was just like he touched me. Mm. And that caught me. I said, that's the story. Yeah. When people hear these stories and read these stories, they need to see that the same Jesus who changed them is changing these Muslims all over the world. And that's, to me, the, the most important thing in, in the book that came out of this, A Wind in the House of Islam. Yeah. That book was so important, I think, um, for so many of us to validate what our individual experiences mm-hmm. with a story of someone who had had a dream or a vision or, in some cases, a broadcast or, mm-hmm. you know, a, but had that personal encounter with the living Christ that enabled them to take this huge step of faith. I mean, we think about (laughs) coming to faith in our culture and, you know, that's a big decision. You know, have you stepped across the line, whatever terminology we use, but what's really hard for many of our listeners, I think to grasp is the kind of totality that Islam is in someone's life. And when, when -hmm. Christ makes that claim on someone's heart and they, they respond to it, you know, they are truly forsaking everything. Yeah. And it is so powerful to walk along with, with men and women. Yeah, like I tell people when I gave my life to Christ, it may have seemed like I died to self. I ended up dating the prettiest girl in the youth group. You know, <laughs> uh, it was there was a wonderful Christian culture that came around me. For a Muslim, they can and often do lose everything. Yeah. Jewish people understand this. Yeah, that's true. It's such an identity thing that uh, to be anathema, to be cursed. Uh, within your own community is a huge challenge. Mm. Did you see a lot of commonality across all of these different cultures? I mean, Indonesia to Pakistan and Bangladesh to North Africa, those are massively different cultures. They really are. And so on the culture side, I saw massive diversity. On the divine side, I saw massive commonality. Mm. So, for example, many, many Muslims who came to Christ across the Muslim world, one of the questions we would ask them after you know, they were followers of Jesus, they'd been baptized, would say, what do you say about the Bible? And they would talk about how it was the authority in their life, and they, they just saw God's Word. To, what do you say about the Quran? These are open-ended questions. And they would say, you know, there's a lot of good things in there. You know, they wouldn't say much about it. What do you say about Jesus? We wanted to hear what they would say. He is God to me. He is God. Mm. You know, everything I know of God, I see in Jesus. Uh, There was never any wishy-washiness about that. But we would also say, what do you say about Muhammad? And they would typically say, nothing. I have nothing to say. (laughs) And so we would say, we would try to unpack that. And the point is, why should they say anything about Muhammad? It's only going to get him killed. It's capital offense to mm. blaspheme the prophet, mm. even if you believe the prophet is uh, detrimental to uh, people's welfare. Mm-hmm. We had a few that would come out and say, well, you know, terrible things about the prophet. They would you know, say things I don't need to repeat here. Uh, but by and large, they just, the prophet was no longer relevant to Not them. Not relevant. Exactly. Yeah. The Quran, no longer an issue. The thing about the Quran, one guy, one uh, imam who was a follower of Jesus, a mullah from South Asia, he said, you know, the Quran speaks 96 times about Jesus. 
Only four times does it mention Muhammad. But the Quran, when I read it cover to cover, it has no plan of salvation. There's nothing that deals with my sins. But when I read the Injil, the New Testament, I see that it has a, a solution for my sinfulness. Jesus is God's answer to my sinfulness, my lostness. That's profound, and it's unique in Islamic thought to have a way out of this vicious cycle mm-hmm. of works and uncertainty, right? I mean, it is, it, yeah. You know, the fatalism, the boundaries of uncertainty are are painful things to live with for most. Yes, one of the Achilles heels of Islam is that it does not have a solution for our sinfulness, our lostness. It just pleads for, you know, God's mercy at the day of judgment. And when you ask them, who's going to be at that judgment? Well, Jesus is the judge. (laughs) So to be prepared to meet Jesus uh, before you meet him ultimately has quite a draw. But these are things that we need to understand about Islam because business as usual, what we've done historically in the West, has not been effective Mm. at reaching Islam. We've been profoundly ineffective, but something is happening today. And we need to learn today what God is using to draw Muslims to faith in Jesus so that we can better align ourselves with the Holy Spirit's activity and be used by Him. Absolutely. There's so much happening across the world. First of all, some people say Islam is the world's fastest growing religion. Mm. Is that true? Yeah, it's the world's fastest growing major religion. Now, evangelicalism is growing faster. Historically, the last hundred years has been growing faster than Islam. But evangelicalism is oftentimes converting Christians from nominal to, you know, to evangelical. Sure to born again. And really within the evangelical, it's it's the charismatic wing that is really exploding in growth. And so were it not for that, our evangelical growth would be much more pedestrian, I, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. It's so amazing to me also that there are, I mean, we talk a little bit about, you know, denominations in Christianity. There are effectively denominations in Islam, correct? Yeah, there really are. What are some of the differences between different groups of uh, Islamic believers? Well, you know, Islam has its uh, Sunni or Orthodox uh, branch That's of like Islam. Big branch. It really is. It claims over 90% of the Muslim world. Even within that, though, there's a lot of diversity. There's Salafis who are like the the old Church of Christ of, uh, you know, getting back to the first century. The Salafis are the ans- want to get back to the ancestors, to the origins. And so that's out of the Salafi worldview. You get groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and groups that are trying mm. to purge all sorts of modernity and westernism from right. Islam. Doesn't like Boko Haram mean, you know, western A, against western education, education is, is, yeah, is forbidden? Is forbidden, exactly. And so you get elements of that as they get back to really a sort of a fundamentalism, you know, back to the Quran and the Hadith and seeing that as a golden age of Islam. And if we just can get back to the you know, 7th century, then we're all going to be okay. That's a kind of anti-modernist pattern. And that's within Sunni Islam, you could say. There's also the, the, you know, the groups like the Wahhabis would be in that category as well. The big split, though, in Islam took place in just the first 100 years when uh, there was a question, who would succeed the Prophet Muhammad? Hmm. And you've got these caliphs, uh, caliphs being a successor 
to the prophet. And there was a big struggle over who's going to, because many of the people who become caliphs were originally against the prophet. And then you've got the, the son-in-law of uh, Muhammad, Ali. Ali. And he is of the family of the prophet, you know. So he has a, a natural claim to the succession. And it was the followers of Ali. They call him the partisans of Ali or the Shia, Shia Ali. Shia. Uh, Shia means yeah. the partisans of Ali that opposed uh, the, the larger Sunni armies and uh, had a big battle in what today is uh, Iraq. Ali was killed. His son Hussein later was killed. Hmm. And, uh, but it led to an underground uh, group of partisans of Ali called the Shiites or the Shia. Today, their uh, main location is in uh, Iran. Mm-hmm. And uh, Iran is kind of wedded Persian nationalism with Shiite identity as sort of a bulwark against Arabization. Mm. And the Sunnis have, uh, are all Arabs. And of course, uh, Sunni Islam goes way beyond the Arab world into South Asia and into Indonesia and beyond. But it's an ongoing struggle, and it has been for centuries, between Shiites and Sunnis. And some of it really predates Islam, because some of it's the Persian world versus the Semitic world in the West and the East and so forth. So a lot of conflicts there. Shiite Islam has a different uh, manifestation of Islam. The Quran is not idolized quite as much as it is, frankly, in the Sunni world. Instead, you have uh, ayatollahs who are literally a a message from God. Mm -hmm. They're able to speak and interpret uh, God's word to the people. So in a sense, they're more like uh, preachers Mm -hmm. uh, who would expound on God's word and and let God speak through them. So there's a little more fluidity there, but at the same time, very authoritarian, whereas Sunni tends to be very grassroots Mm -hmm. because you can have a mosque anywhere and... uh, you get someone who may be illiterate, but he's memorized the Quran because he's heard it so many times and he becomes an imam. It's an interesting, diverse climate. Interesting is right. So uh, the Ottoman Turks, mm-hmm. were they Sunni or were they Shia? They or, were Sunni, but they were Ottoman Sunni. So, <laughs> you know, we used to talk about the, the Turks are an interesting phenomenon. They stretch all across Central Asia. And uh, we said, you know, you go into the Turkic world and uh, you sit down with these guys and they pour you some vodka. Well, what's that about? <laughs> you know, well, we, you know, we're Turks. We, we drink. This vodka, is what we right? do. <laughs> now, as they become more um, discipled, I suppose, or indoctrinated, many of them renounce alcohol. But mm. uh, we're seeing uh, a Turkic nationalism has really rallied around Islam. Mm. And historically, that has been a factor in their taking uh, uh, Constantinople in 1453. That was uh, the greatest city in Christendom. For a thousand years, and uh, it was always the target of Islam to take that. It was the Ottomans who led that siege, yeah. and uh, it became their capital as Istanbul. Mm. So, yeah, it's Sunni, but it's a Sunni Islam that has conquered Arab territories and often been viewed as oppressive. Yeah, you know, when you uh, when you're in Saudi Arabia, the big enemy was Turkey. Yeah, even though Turkey possessed the Arabian Peninsula. So it's always been a difficult thing, and their big uh, one of their big enemies was always the Persian world. So the Pahlavis and uh, all that followed that were a sort of a Persian nationalism versus Ottoman Turkish and Arab nationalism. It is 
I know for many of our uh, listeners to this podcast, you know, bringing the broad scope of of this this global presence of Islam is so fascinating mm. that the rabbit hole is deep, brother. It the is. The rabbit hole is. is deep. And, you know, when you when you think about the various places, I mean, I, you know, in northern Iraq, you have the Kurds and the Kurds are, you know, enemies of the Turks and the, you know, they're our friends sort of. And then yet they're, you know, they're, yeah. it's just been, it's just been a remarkable complexity. And yet what I love about Wind in the House of Islam is that it takes this straight through line mm. that Jesus is not so concerned <laughs> mm-hmm. about the differences in our cultures. We need to be because we have responsibilities to address the gospel in those different areas. But Jesus penetrates all of those Indeed. cultural layers yeah. that the enemy has used for centuries to keep people from the truth. So it's, yeah, it's a it, powerful story. To me, I would come back from doing these interviews over a couple of years' time. I'd come home and I would sit out on the deck and I would transcribe them and I would have to anonymize them. All of the stories are anonymized. We change the names. But I would come in sometimes just weeping and I would tell Sonia, you've got to hear this story. Yeah. And it's this story of Jesus, you know, reaching into the Berber communities of Algeria. Mm. And you go in these homes of Berbers and they all seem to have this picture on the wall of the good shepherd with a sheep over his shoulders. And for them... That's who Jesus was to them. They're a shepherd people. You know, they know this. That, that's, and Jesus met them where they were. Mm-hmm. And yet you go into the Afghan, the tribal area there between Afghan and Pakistan, where they've had generations of war. And they talk about Jesus as this prince of peace, You're the one who took away the fighting and the hostility. And he met each of these groups where they were. Yeah. That's what, to me, was a great testimony to the reality of God. Because you, know, you can get sort of into this Western uh, malaise hmm. of secularism where you say, you know, is there really a God? And, and does he really care? But when you hear these lives radically transformed all over the world, you come to see that, boy, he is at work in the world. We need to snap out of this stupor that we're in here in the West. Yeah. And recognize that God has a plan for us, too. And even in the Christian communities in the West, I mean, we're so often fearful yeah. of the, the Muslim world. And yet, you know, there's an invitation there. There's a movement mm-hmm. there. Um, I think it was uh, Black a bit years ago who wrote, said, hey, if you want to do God's will, find out where he's working and go there, right? Yeah. He's he's at work in the Islamic world. We're all indebted to Blackaby. And uh, last time I saw Henry Blackaby, it was outside of Mumbai. He was in his 70s, still going around. He said, you know, I've just been talking to these Catholics over here in Mumbai. God's at work in their community. <laughs> you guys need to be working with them. You're kind of scolding us as Baptists, fellow Baptists. <laughs> but yeah, God is at work in our world. And if we will, if we will see and we'll open our hearts, our minds and ears, listen, we're going to find uh, that God has a much bigger agenda for the world than we have. Mm. Well, let's go back to that church planting mm. uh, conversation we were having a little bit earlier. You know, church planting, it takes a lot of different forms in a lot of different places. It's a it's part of the, you know, our, our nation is involved in a lot of church planting in inner cities and various other things. But in the Muslim world, it's got to be a unique and challenging environment. What are some of the obstacles to doing church planting in these Islamic countries? Well, religion is so tightly defined in these countries that for a Muslim to casually begin attending a Christian church in a place like Egypt, for example, could mean not only the death of that 
Muslim background believer, but also the death of that church. Mm. Uh, I met one fellow in Egypt. Uh, I'd, I was sharing about Muslim movements to Christ, and a guy came up to me afterwards very quietly, and he showed me an old clipping from a newspaper of a person who had died, a Christian who had died, and the name of that Christian, he said, that's me. I said, what? He says, I've taken that identity because my name was Muhammad such and such. He was a Muslim who had come to faith and he had taken the identity of a person who had died so that he could live within the Christian community. So That's how hard it was for him to survive. That is fascinating. I don't think too many of our listeners have ever encountered something as dramatic as that. He actually assumed the identity of a dead Christian who had, because of his traditional Christian status was probably able to function. In, exactly. But this was a Muslim background believer. Yeah. Who, who became a, a dead Christian yeah. so that he could, so that he could live. Now that's, I've heard of people doing that in politics, but right. I'm not quite sure that. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, you know, I don't know how many of those are going to come out of the closet. They obviously it's very risky, but he, he needed to tell me that. Yeah. Many others though are meeting quietly, clandestinely, secretly, small groups, Ones and twos, twos and threes. We met some up in Uzbekistan, in a remote corner of Uzbekistan, who are under such persecution. And they said, you know, when we get together, we get together twos and threes, and we'll have our little cell phone, and we will download uh, scripture on it. We'll read it together. We'll pray for one another. And we'll say to each other, we'll say this. I said, if you get arrested, rejoice that you haven't been beaten. If you get beaten, Rejoice that you haven't been killed. If you've been killed, rejoice that you're with Jesus in heaven today. Wow. And then we disband. Wow. I thought, oh, that's my a benediction. Goodness. Yeah, that's a benediction, <laughs> a real benediction. So it is different in different places. You know, we see there's places I went to in, in sub Saharan Africa, right along the Sahel, which is the southern edge of the Sahara which is really the battleground between Christianity pushing up from the south and Islam pushing down from the north. But there were places in Sudan and Ethiopia where entire uh, communities of Muslims were now 50,000, 60,000 Muslim background believers. So you'd get the mayor of their little, or the chief of their little town. And he was also uh, a former imam, and now he was a Christian leader. Right. Uh, in, in Ethiopia, they call these people pentes. Pentes, short for Pentecostals. <laughs> so they're not the Ethiopian Orthodox. Right. They're not the Mennonite. You know, right. they're the Pentes. And so these guys, uh, now their whole village are believers. And, but they keep the names Muhammad Abdullah or, you know, something very Islamic. Right. Because they want people to know that we used to be Muslim and now we're followers of Jesus. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's mm. amazing. And it's, uh, you know, in our culture, we don't ascribe meaning to names, but in, in many of these cultures, the name is mm-hmm. the, the, the statement, yeah. the life statement of someone. So that's really powerful that they would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, yeah. and I'm keeping... You know, I like to think they're almost, Carl, they're almost redeeming the name because yeah. the name Abdullah means servant of God. Yes, and we think of it, oh, that's an Islamic terrorist name, Servant of God. Let's redeem that name. Let's take it back. Even the name Muhammad, you know, one who's full of praise. I've said to people, I am a Muslim myself. Yeah, in that in, sense. In that context. We're submitted, because Islam and Muslim means submitted to God. Right. And they are submitted to God as they know Him. Yes. 
And that's the tragedy is they don't know him in his love, his fullness, his redemption. God who loved them so much, he laid down his life for them. Yeah, amen. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, let us know. Go to joshuafund.com and use the Contact Us form to provide feedback. Likewise, if you'd like this podcast to continue, you can donate through our giving page, and you can find that link in the upper right-hand corner at joshuafund.com. What can we in the West do to help foster church planting movements in these difficult countries? Uh, There's several things we can do. Uh, You know, I have to begin with prayer. I was talking to my friend Paul Felitas, who's the uh, founding editor of the uh, 30 Days of Prayer for the Muslim World. Yeah, wonderful guy. And uh, when I would come back from doing these research, these interviews, these stories, I'd come back, I would just tell Paul, I'd get to him and say, Mom, I interviewed about this mullah and about this miracle and this answered prayer and this dream. And he sat there, and he, one time he asked me, he said, David, when did these things begin? He said, there's happening so many. And I said, um, you know, I hadn't really thought about when there was kind of this escalation. He said, well, go back and look at your notes and see if you can identify. And I went back and I said, you know, within the last 25 years, this was about five years ago, within the last 25 years, 84% of all the Muslim movements to Christ in history have occurred in the last 25 years. And I said, I actually went back and I examined from the year 622 when the Islamic calendar begins up to the present, identified every movement that's historically recorded. And 85%, 84, 85% had happened in that 25-year period in our lifetime. And I told this to Paul and his eyes began to fill with tears. I said, Paul, what's the matter? He said, David, it was 25 years ago that we began 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. Wow. Now, I was looking for the question I asked many, many Muslims was, or Muslim background believers was, what did God use to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ? I didn't have any of them who said, well, it was because there were thousands of Christians praying for us. They didn't know. They didn't know. But when we correlated that, that can't be a coincidence. We're praying, and I would urge people who hear this You know, 30 days of prayer takes place every year in the month of Ramadan, Mm -hmm. the Muslim month of Ramadan, when Muslims are praying and fasting all over the world. And toward the end of it, they have a night of power when they ask God to speak to them. Mm. And so now there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Christians in countries all over the world who during that month are praying for Muslims that God would reveal himself. And there's a website called 30daysprayer.com. 30daysprayer.com, where you can access these little booklets. They just every day teach you something about what God is doing in the Muslim world and how you can learn about and pray for Muslims. So I would say that's a good beginning. That's a great beginning. Prayer, you know, the common appreciation of prayer in the West is, well, once you've done everything, then you should pray. You know, mm-hmm. And it is, yeah. it is so backwards mm-hmm. to the way God has used prayer to kind of break up the hard soil, to overcome distances and I, I, many, many stories. But I remember, you know, for years I worked with Brother Andrew, who after working in Eastern Europe began to turn his attention primarily to the Muslim world. Right. And in many of the cases, you know, right after 9-11, I was working with Brother Andrew. I am 
I think we were actually in Arkansas at a CMA <laughs> conference one time. And he looked at the audience and he had said this to me and it was so penetrating. He goes, have you prayed for bin Laden today? Mm. And, you know, of course, an enemy. But what are we commanded to do? To love our enemies, to bless yeah. those that persecute you, those that want to kill you. You turn around and you give them the hope of Jesus Christ. How could we not pray for Bin Laden or any one of these? You know, I've got to tell you a story. Sure, please. Because all this intersects. I was uh, Sonia and I, my wife and I, were invited to uh, go to Paris to speak to a big. Uh, What's it called? Porte Ouverte, uh, oh, yeah. Open Doors, <laughs> the Open Doors gathering there in Europe. And hundreds and hundreds of their partners gathered together in a big uh, conference center. And uh, I spoke on Muslim movements to Christ. And they had just uh, translated, our, our good friend Eric Salarier had just translated my book, in, uh, Wind in the House of Islam, into um, French. It's called something like A Soufflé in the House of Islam, <laughs> in the Maison, dans la Maison de l'Islam. <laughs> And he had sold 800 copies before the thing even came off the press. <laughs> and I told him when I met him earlier, I said, Eric, I don't think French are going to buy this book. There's no, there's no evangelicals in <laughs> France. France. He said, no, David, you do not understand. He said, in France, even the atheists want to know that Muslims are converting to something. <laughs> and sure enough, he has sold hundreds and hundreds of books. But I was speaking to this group, and afterwards they lined up to have me sign their book. It's just a French thing. You know, I was autographing books. And this one woman, French woman, came through, and I'd signed a book for her. She was married to a Kabil Berber, Muslim background believer. And then a few minutes later, she came back with another book. She said, I have a prison ministry, and I'm ministering to this guy in prison here. He's got a life sentence, and he's recently converted to Islam. And I think if he reads this, it will help him to know that God loves Muslims, too. And so I said, sure. I said, who shall I make it out to? He said, make it out to Carlos. So I'm starting to sign it to Carlos, and my mind is just going, no way. I said, is this by any chance Carlos the Jackal? And she said, oui, c'est ça, that's him. And I said, to Carlos. <laughs> I wrote a little note. I actually gave him my email address in case he wanted to correspond. For those listeners who don't know, The Day of the Jackal was a famous movie. There's been several movies made about the man who was the international assassin, terrorist, involved in so many plots around the world, from Venezuela, I believe, originally, and uh, is serving a life sentence in France and converted to Islam. And this woman has a personal ministry to him. Wow. And uh, praying for your enemies yeah. Wow. God, there's no place that God can't touch and can't reach. That's right. That's right. You know, one of the things about so many that we're going to we're going to talk about Israel and the neighboring countries, because that's kind of where we go. Mm-hmm. But before we do, you know, one of the challenges that come with mission work, I think sometimes we only talk about the triumphal kind of stories, mm. you know, the this community converted to Christ. A yeah. friend of mine, Ron Floyd McMillan, wrote a fabulous book a few years ago called Faith That Endures. Mm. And he kind of looked at a number of the historical Christian communities that have been extinguished. I mean, if you go to, you know, Asia Minor, right. all the churches of Revelation were in places yeah. that ultimately they were extinguished. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating, he said, because there are certain elements that need to be in place 
in order for the Christian community to endure if persecution mm -hmm. comes or it maintains. Uh, what are some of the things that you've seen? Maybe some of the maybe some of the situations where it hasn't all worked out. Sure. But those kinds of things that you know we need to be praying around and praying through. Yeah, you know, one of the things we're seeing in uh, where Christianity is uh, vibrant in the Middle East is a reemergence of Christianity from Muslim roots. Uh, indigenous historic Christianity is sort of a different phenomenon, and it's had a different set of challenges. Hmm. It is so tied to a culture, and that's both its strength and its weakness, hmm. that when that culture can thrive and uh, persist, then that Christian community does. We see it in Egypt as the strongest indigenous ancient Christian culture in the Middle East. In other places where it has been uh, tightly bound to a culture that has long since ceased to be alive, mm. it's a problem. Uh, we've seen that in uh, Iraq uh, with the, the Assyrian church where they're still using Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. And certainly we don't want to see that go away, but when no one has spoken that for over a thousand years, it's hard to have that message really understood and incarnated in the culture. Mm -hmm. And it becomes easier for um, that culture to become ghettoized so that it becomes smaller and smaller, more under persecution and a sense of siege. And there's so many incentives given to that community to leave and to become a part of the Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very concerted effort to entice people to leave. So that's the challenge. Yeah. What we're seeing in this reemergence of indigenous Christianity, new indigenous Christianity, is in the language of the people, in their heart language, yes. uh, within their own context. And uh, for that reason, I'm optimistic that it has a real future. In the past, I think many missional efforts into that area have been sort of cultural conquests. Hmm. That if you're going to be a Christian in North Africa, you're going to be a, a Byzantine Orthodox Christian. That hmm. was a part of the culture. Right. And you're going to worship God in the Greek language, even though no one across that area spoke Greek. <laughs> or when the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to do it in Latin. And later when the French come in, you're going to do it in French. Now they're doing it in Kabyle. They're Kabyle Berber language. They're doing it in their heart language. And that's been so important. The Jesus film has been critical in that. SIL, Wycliffe Translators, mm -hmm. have been so beneficial. Radio broadcasters getting it into the heart languages of the people. So I'm optimistic that we're bringing the gospel in on a new foundation that really is the original foundation, which is God's word in your own language and worldview. So yeah. I'm hopeful. Well, I, I, I would agree 100%. Uh, my background with, you know, with Bible translation and various other things, you know, that heart language, that, you know, the idea that the New Testament was written in a language that wasn't the language Jesus spoke mm -hmm. is a powerful example of how going, uh, whatever it takes to cross yeah. those things, to, to speak the language and to do those things that, so that some can know and some can hear. Well, the power's in the gospel, Amen. and it's not in our methods or techniques or who we are, any of those things. It's in the gospel. So it's incumbent on us to get the gospel to them in a way that they understand, right. that is good news to them in their own worldview, language, culture, 
and then it'll have a life of its own. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the centerpiece of the Joshua Fund's work, the mm-hmm. uh, the title of our podcast, Joel Rosenberg's, and my uh, mm-hmm. podcast is Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. And, and Joel has used that term epicenter, both from a biblical, historical, and religious and geopolitical sort of crucible that, that takes place in Israel and the surrounding countries. We, we like to say it's the epicenter. It's a vortex. Mm-hmm. It has, we have a unique phrase in, in the Joshua Fund, which we call, we're called from Genesis 12 to bless Israel. Mm-hmm. And to those that bless her, God says, we'll be blessed. But God also extends that blessing in many places to the neighboring countries. And so we say we exist to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And it's those middle three words mm. and her neighbors that make things very complex sure. for the work that we're doing. Let's talk a little bit about how, you know, how Israel is seen in some of these cultures, you know, in the neighboring countries. We're talking about Lebanon, uh, Iraq, Syria, Jordan. Uh, of course, West Bank and Palestinian territories and Egypt uh, mm-hmm. in particular, those are the, the main countries. But by extension, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, some of the ones that are in that area. What does that crucible, that epicenter look like from your perspective? Boy, it is complicated and it's changing. Israel, you know, has been the stumbling block in that part of the world for all of those people uh, all those nations surrounding Israel and the stumbling block may become a cornerstone uh, in the future because I think things are changing and I hope and pray they're changing. When we studied uh, Arabic in Egypt, I remember back in uh, 93, I remember the day there'd been some unrest, some intifada or something going on in Israel. And so Egypt, Egyptian at a grassroots level rallied behind the Palestinians and entering into the Center for the Study of Arabic, where we at the University of Alexandria, students had placed an Israeli flag on the ground so that you had to walk on it to come in to the uh, the center. And we opted not to go to class that day. But it spoke to the ire in the entire uh, Muslim world. I mean, from Indonesia to West Africa, was united that Israel was the bad guy here. And uh, they were rallying behind the Palestinians and so forth. Um, and in Egypt, there was a kind of an embarrassment that uh, they had lost, you know, these in 67, they had lost this war against Israel. In 73, they kind of fought to a stalemate. They got a little of their pride back. But it became, you know, the rallying cry, this is why we must build our military. This is why we must get back to fundamentalist Islam. This is why we must purge the West. And they viewed Israel as really being uh, the most recent crusade. Hmm. It was not viewed as a, a Jewish thing so much as a tool of the West, Europe. They remember the Crusades like it was yesterday. And they they looked at Israel as just, this is the latest Crusader incursion into our... They just happened to have used Jews to do it, but that's really what it's about. And that was often buzzed around that area. I do think some things are changing now. I think um, it remains to be seen what will happen. But uh, God knows that uh, why He chose these Jewish people. Mm Mm-hmm. But he did. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just a testament to the fact that he's God and we're not. 
And so we can't deny the fact that God, for whatever purposes, has his hand on Jewish people and Israel. And so we try to navigate that. Uh, People, sadly these days, I think this is a real pitfall, is to get into an either or. Mm -hmm. Either you're pro-Israel or you're pro-Muslim. And, you know, I'm pro-people. (laughs) I'm pro-people because they all have the image of God. Jesus died for all of them. And there's nothing magical about being uh, on one side of that divide or the other. You're missing God's perspective. And I think we've got to have the perspective of both and. That's well said. Pro-people, pro-Jesus. But, you know, in many ways, you know, the complexities are compounded by these simple solutions that we want to apply. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine came with me one time and said, on the flight back, I said, so, Todd, what'd you think of this, you know, this place? And he goes, well, I understood it a lot better before I came. <laughs> <laughs> That's very apropos. Uh, I love Israel. I, I used to go there every year and I'd walk, I've walked the Galilee where Jesus walked and I've walked to Bethlehem. And, you know, I just I resonate with this place that God, for whatever reason, had put his hand on. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's not about a place it's not even about a people. It's about what does God desire? Yeah. Uh, what is God's plan of salvation in Christ? Christ is God's plan of salvation for every nation, tribe, and tongue. Amen. Amen. It's fascinating. Um, you know, Israel, to me, has such an incredible role to play. But you know what's so encouraging, David? is your story about the wind in the house of the Islam. The, the, the narratives that come out of that mm. Revolution. The fact that 10 years removed from when you worked there, in some ways, you were alerted to this movement of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit that was yeah. going on. That hasn't yet <clears throat> happened in Israel yet. Mm-hmm. We still see incredibly difficult conversion rates from, you know, serious believing Jewish people. Yeah. What are some of the things that we should be on the lookout for, you know, as God is beginning to open those things up? We know, prophetically, there will be a time when Israeli hearts, uh, Jewish hearts are opened to the Messiah, to recognize him, to see him as he is. But what are some of the things we might be? Well, I was uh, just last week, I was over at the Lion's Den, a little gathering of guys together. And a brother was in visiting from uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he's uh, uh, in charge of development for a huge global ministry that's just growing all over the world. And I caught his name. I said, you wouldn't by any chance be Jewish background, would you? He said, yeah, I am. Mm. And he told me the story of how his father had, Jesus just appeared to him twice and radically changed his life. And I just last night signed a, an agreement with the Oxford Missions Study Center uh, in Oxford, England, uh, to be a, a supervising professor or scholar for a, a fellow doing his doctorate there. The executive director of the Oxford Center is a Jewish background believer. Really? His uh, father and his uncle were both heads of Wycliffe Translators, the Bender Samuels. That's his background as well. And he retains that identity uh, because, you know, why wouldn't you? You know, it's a wonderful thing. So the fact is, I think what I'm getting to is that God is at work in the Jewish community all over the world. Mm-hmm. There are tremendous barriers, and we've seen them put up walls to try to protect their people from the gospel. Yeah. Because they knew that if they really saw the salvation story, you know, that they know right up to the time of the New Testament and they stop and leap over it. 
if they could see how Jesus is such a natural fulfillment of that, then they would see that they have a place in this. And so I'm hopeful as communication gets better, as a, frankly, I'm delighted that the anti-Semitism that has characterized Christian history mm-hmm. for so long, mm-hmm. uh, we finally, uh, for whatever reason, whether it was the slap in the face of the Holocaust or what, we're finally, I think, repenting of that. Yeah. And maybe we will see a day when Israel and the Jewish community will be able to see Jesus not wrapped up in a anti-Semitic flag, but see him in all of his glory, which is to see God in all of his glory. Yeah. And then we'll see, we'll start to see some real harvest. So I'm hopeful that that day will come. Yeah. Well, we are too. And, and we, we feel like there's an opportunity in being there, in continuing to bless Amen. Israel, to continuing to bless her neighbors in the name of Jesus, that allows us, you know, the presence to be able to see God begin to work and, and change some of those hearts and minds. I kind of, I draw encouragement from your story and the story of many other missionaries to the Muslim world for decades, you know, being there, planting seeds, you know, being present. And then when God chooses to open the hearts of those that, that you're there for, you know, nothing's going to stop that. Amen. It's just a blessing. Changing gears one more time, I'm just, these are probably going to be able to be modularly edited around in some of those ways. But changing gears just one more time, I would like to get your take on some of the traditional Christian communities in places like Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt, and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. You know, these are, uh, you know, and Jordan, you know, these are places where the Christian community has existed. The ancient church. The ancient churches. Yeah. You know, we mentioned a little bit about, you know, uh, the language. The, the Assyrian. Assyrian, the, you know, those kinds of things. And the other traditions. Talk a little bit about the Christian communities in these places and what unique challenges do they face? <laughs> well, there's a wonderful book written by Philip Jenkins called The Lost History of Christianity. Mm which really does a marvelous job of exegeting the history and the continuity of that part of the world. The subtitle, which is so tragic, is uh, The Thousand-Year History of Christianity in the Middle East and North Africa and How It Died. Mm. Because he points out rightly that that was the epicenter of Christianity for a thousand years. And uh, it uh, has been largely, much of it eradicated in our lifetime. One of the real tragedies, and and this was uh, disturbing to me, was what happened with the Iraq War. Hmm. Uh, When we went into Iraq, uh, at the time, uh, Baghdad was as much as 10% Christian. Today, it's, you know, less than 1%. Uh, What happened? Well, there was a kind of a rapprochement that took place in Iraq between the Sunnis, the Shiites, the Kurds, the Arabs, and the Christians and the Baathist party that we've all heard, you know, such terrible things about was actually formed by a, a Christian. If you're a minority in a country, you want to somehow transcend religious identities. And so he, with the Baathist party, they were creating something that identified Arab nationalism as mm-hmm. what really unites us. And so uh, Saddam Hussein you know, rose to power on a Baathist platform and, uh, and really supported the Christian community there as long as they were subservient, uh, gave gifts to them every year and protected them. When we removed Saddam Hussein, we also outlawed the Baathist Party. Mm. And that 
caused everyone to fall back to their secondary identities, which is, I'm a Kurd, I'm a Sunni, I'm a Shiite, I'm a Christian. Mm. And of course, the Christians were the weakest of those. And uh, when I was in Jordan, uh, one of my trips, my taxi driver was a Jordanian, and he was some of the thousands of, uh, taxi driver was not a Jordanian, he was an Iraqi uh, immigrant into Jordan. And he told me stories of the immigrants, the thousands that had come into Jordan, and I said, tell me the story. Why are they leaving? He said, well, you get a knock on the door and uh, a little Shiite band of militia will come to your door and say, we know that you're Christian. He said, uh, we welcome you into Islam and uh, you have a choice. You can either join us and everything will be fine. Or number two, you can pack up everything you can and be gone in a week and we won't kill you. Mm. Number three, we kill you. Mm. He said, so thousands and thousands have fled because there was no protection from the state Mm -hmm. for the minorities. And tragically, this was during the time of the American occupation in Iraq. America could not be seen as protecting the Christian minorities because we were trying to maintain stability. It would play into a, a narrative that the extremists were We were kicked a hornet's making. nest that yeah. we had no idea what we were getting to, or maybe we didn't really care. Mm. And I think that's part of it. We were looking at the big picture of geopolitics, and some said the Iraq war was an effort to stop playing chess and start playing checkers. Boom. And uh, what ended up happening was all this disruption. And you know, Islam, by and large, is not the most tolerant of religious minorities. So when you, a lot of the, Christian community fled to Syria, mm-hmm. where Syria's uh, <laughs> dictators were also from an ethnic minority. They were from a religious minority of a, a sect of, a heretical sect of Islam that uh, was under anathema from uh, the uh, Sunni community. And so they protected Christian minorities and Druze minorities and, and their own ethnic or religious minorities. And when uh, popular uprising, the Arab Spring took place, and they were going to topple that minority government and put in a Sunni, popularly elected Sunni uh, leadership. These guys in Syria fought to the death because there was no plan B. Mm-hmm. Sort of like Israel when they're faced with uh, war, there's no plan B. You, you, know, you either or go home. fight to the death or <laughs> yeah, it's over. Right. And so the same thing happened in Syria and the horrible atrocities. You had even Christians involved in it because they were fighting for their very existence. So I didn't mean to go down the road so much of the military approach, but that's what's happened in that part of the world. We're seeing just an exodus of historic Christian populations in our lifetime. You know, some of them have survived for 14 centuries with growing Islamic presence, but in our lifetime... Under our policies, we're seeing them come to Chicago and yeah. Detroit and New York City yeah. and uh, other places in the West. And the tragedy is, of course, is that these are historic Christian communities. They're different than yeah. American Christians or the evangelical Christians, but they are, in fact, you know, still under the name of Christ. But these movements we talked about earlier in terms of Muslim background believers, or uh, as some of my friends like to refer to them, believers from a Muslim background. Right. (laughs) These BMBs or MBBs, Mm -hmm. they also have challenges within these cultures, whether it's Egypt or you mentioned 
earlier about a, you know, someone adopting a, an identity of a dead yeah, Christian. Yeah, in Egypt. Now, why is that? What's so difficult for them? Well, Sharia is very pervasive. Sharia is from the Arabic word for the, the way. It's used for roads. Sharia, al, something or other, is the way of such and such. It becomes an all-encompassing uh, way of life. It includes education. So uh, I talked to people in Algeria and in other countries who said, you know, our big challenge here is that, you know, we're following Jesus. We've been born again. We're raising our kids. They're required to go to school where they're taught Arabic. They're taught the Hadith. They're taught the Quran. They're made to memorize things from Islam. And they're being indoctrinated in the educational system. So that's one of the challenges is that uh, Sharia has been an extremely effective tool for assimilating uh, minority populations. And uh, it remains to be seen whether these Muslim movements to Christ will be able to come up with their own educational systems and programs and uh, even things like burying. I met a fellow down in Ethiopia from a particular uh, Muslim people group. He had come to faith in Christ and he would walk like five miles on Sunday to go to a church. And he walked back and uh, he said the sad thing for him was when his daughter died, they wouldn't give him a place to bury her because they only had the Islamic cemetery. Mm. And so when I hear things in a Muslim background community or Christians from a Muslim background, when they say we now are able to marry, we perform marriages and it's legal, mm. or we're now able to buy a plot of land and bury our dead there with a Christian burial, they're beginning to answer those challenges that are presented by a totalitarian system, which is what Sharia is. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always heard it say, too, that uh, there is conversion in Islam. It's all one way, yeah. like a ratchet. Yeah. You can move this way, but you can't move back. That's a good way of putting it. Um, I always said it has on-ramps, but no exits. Exactly. And, and as you said, you know, about those militias coming to Christians' doors saying, hey, if you want to become Muslim, we welcome you. Mm-hmm. Come, yeah, but very gracious. What what happens though when a when a when a believer comes to faith in Christ from a Muslim background, but they go to some of these historic Christian churches, um, say the the local Chaldean Orthodox or the the local Assyrian or the local Coptic Orthodox Church. The, the, the reason I ask the question is because we have a very unique footprint in these five countries mm-hmm. because we're. So identified with the Jewish state, yeah. so identified with that um, in the minds of many of the folks in these countries, especially Muslim background believers, because we do support and really get behind evangelistic mm-hmm. movements. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for very few of our partners know that they're associated with the Joshua Fund. Right. It's like the old days when I was with Open Doors and I went to China, Hong Kong, you know, was... I think I may have told you the story at an earlier time, but it was like the first year I'm as CEO of Open Doors and I go to Hong Kong and we're teaching, you know, for like three days in this uh, new territories, you know, apartment and everybody's packed in there and we're teaching. And at the end of the first day, I, I went to our director in China and I said, he was translating. And I said, so is this pretty good? He goes, yes, they're loving it. It's very good. I said, but they're kind of disappointed. I said, Why? Because some of them thought they worked for the CIA. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've got to put you in a box somewhere. Yeah. I had a guy went into Libya. Uh, he was a 
John Lutz was with Pioneers, and uh, he went into Libya boldly sharing the gospel, all this kinds of with a tour group, and, and people say, well, what brings you to Libya? So oh, I just love Jesus, and Jesus loves Libya, and that's why. And after he left, I thought, what genius. <laughs> because if he had not done that, the only American allowed to go in, they would have assumed he was CIA. Right. And the fact that he was such an over-the-top oh. Christian allowed them to kind of put him in a different box. I, 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 we're way off subject, but I really love this idea because I love to play the dumb American when yeah. I go through you know, uh, airports and, and mm-hmm. such. It's like, oh, do I go this way? Oh, that way? Uh, oh, yeah, I've got Bibles in my suitcase because, you know, I just love Jesus. I, I like to have as many Bibles as I can. Yeah. And, you know, in half of the countries, they don't understand. You know, they might think, oh, well, I guess having more Bibles means you're more Christian. You know, right. I don't know, but um, yeah, it's a safer place to be than this hide in you know, plain sight. Exactly, hide in plain sight is exactly right. right. Yeah. Anyway, well, we, we back to the your back question. to the original yeah. question because you know it's obviously so difficult in the reports we get. The reason we have to be very very clandestine is because we work with these background believers, and in many cases they're not even welcomed. But yeah. they're not welcomed by their families. They're not welcomed by their culture. And they're not welcomed and, by the church. And the church doesn't welcome them. Talk about yeah, the that church a bit. cannot. Yeah, there are people in the churches, in the historic churches, who have a, a historic enmity with Muslims. And when Muslims come to Christ, they question it. They've seen over the centuries a Muslim convert join their church only to marry their daughter and then convert back to Islam, and they lose everything, including their kids, their mm-hmm. grandkids. So there's a historic distrust. There is some of it is insidious where the Muslim community, I've been in places where I've talked to guys who said we had a strategy that if there was a wealthy Christian man in this uh, village, uh, we would uh, find a good, beautiful Muslim girl who would basically seduce him to marriage and would marry him. And then she had a strategy that she would either uh, divorce him, taking half of what he had or poison him, taking all of what he had, or convert him to Islam, bringing all of it into the Muslim world. I'm not saying that's everywhere, but there are enough dawah groups. Dawah is the uh, missional expression of Islam, and it means invitation. If it was just an invitation, it'd be one thing. But uh, they've got some strategists who put our strategists to shame uh, because they really do believe the end justifies the means. If we can get these people or their, uh, especially these people and and their assets into the house of Islam, we have done great service to God. So I want to be sympathetic in that regard, but we need to be aware of it as well and realize that for many, many traditional Christian communities, Allowing a Muslim to be a part of their, a Muslim background believer to join their congregation has so many barriers. You know, they could be targeted then. And I have friends who were in a church in uh, Islamabad when uh, terrorists rolled grenades into the church and they blew up. So it's not like this is something that doesn't happen. So I'm sympathetic. What I would love to see happen is a change. Mm -hmm. Um, The Pew Forum, for example, has done surveys periodically of what is the popular attitude in the country regarding conversion from Islam. And you get places like Jordan, which seems so Western and so uh, pro-Western in so many ways. It has one of the highest uh, popular grassroots levels of, we believe they should be, it should be a capital offense. 
So I'd love to see that change. And in a way, I look at Israelis as being maybe God's uh, vehicles for change. Because when I look at what the Jewish community that has faced so much persecution through the centuries Mm -hmm. as a small yet uh, vibrant minority in predominantly Christian countries, they've created vehicles that help to protect their population, protect their rights, allow them to not only survive, but today thrive. I would love to see that replicated in the Muslim world where you could have, um, because most of these Muslim countries have signed the UN Declaration on Human Rights. They've signed other charters that say, oh yes, we believe in the right of freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, freedom to convert is a recent one that they signed, a Morocco Declaration. And yet, there's two laws at work here. One is the de jure, (laughs) what the law says, and there's the de facto, what actually happens. And in many of these places, uh, a convert from Islam will be killed before he or she ever gets to a law court. It's expected that their family, their clan, their community, an uncle, someone will do it. I had a Muslim background friend in Egypt. We call him Mo. (laughs) <laughs> which is short for Muhammad. <laughs> and uh, Mo told me, he said, under Islam, and he didn't say Islamic law because technically Egypt was a secular state. But what he was saying was the reality, the de facto is we're under Islam here. He said, under Islam, my blood is not forbidden. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, it means if I'm eating in a restaurant and the guy who runs the restaurant's a devout Muslim and he finds out that I've converted from Islam, if he puts poison in my soup or in my tea and I die from it, then my blood's not forbidden. Mm-hmm. I actually did research later at the Institut de Monde Arabe in Paris on uh, the status of converts, and they said, you can't violate a dead person. And when a person converts from Islam, they're, they're dead. dead. They're dead. So their blood is not forbidden. Now, that's a de facto. That's the reality as opposed to what the law may say. And you get these public pronouncements and the king says this and the president says that. But what you really need is structures like the Anti-Defamation League or B'nai B'rith or these organizations within a society that say, you know, we're going after the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. We're going after... We're going to stand on the law. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we're going to press these cases mm-hmm. to set precedents to protect people and to publicize the mm-hmm. discrimination. That needs to happen in the Muslim world as well. You know, it's really complex, though, too, because uh, take, for example, Egypt. Uh, Egypt swung wildly towards the Muslim Brotherhood after the mm-hmm. Arab Spring, swung back to a military-based sort of uh, dictator with al-Sisi, and he came right out and said, "We're going to be, we're going to partner with the U.S. and we're going to anti-terrorism, and in fact, we're going to protect the churches." So mm. what did they do? They put guards mm. at the doors of the churches, <laughs> checking identities. Right. Don't As want people, any Muslim terrorists coming in don't there. Don't want any Muslim terrorists coming into the church. Yeah. But what does that effectively do to those that still carry a Muslim identity card? But are sure. Which just builds a wall around that church, which is why we've got to... One of the challenges is is coming up with new wineskins. We're looking for new wineskins for this new wine that is being uh, fermented in the uh, Muslim world. 
And uh, it's leading to uh, really a restoration, maybe, or rediscovery of early church models. When the Christians met in catacombs and they met in graveyards and they they did things that were off-putting, like greet one another with a holy kiss. Because you get a guy with a big bushy beard who smells like, you know... uh, uh, chickpeas or something, and he kisses you on the lips, you know, he better be a Christian. Only a Christian would do that. There's things like that that we see hints of in the early church that are reemerging in the 21st century church, and it's very promising and hopeful. Sort of like those ancient Greek inscriptions of a fish. Exactly. Just, just the two arcs. Yeah, and I want to say, too, this is probably a good time to say it. It's why we in the West who have the luxury of being out of the open, of having magnificent buildings and crosses and presents, we need to be tolerant, understanding of those who cannot be as open as us, mm-hmm. who may still say uh, when asked in public, yes, I'm a Muslim, and they've kept their Islamic name. But if they could speak openly... And when you could talk to them privately and anonymously, they tell you, I despise Islam. I follow Jesus with all my heart. But they have to be who they have to be in their context. Mm. That's hard for us. We like to pull mm. out the verses, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. You know, that's between them and God and Jesus as their Savior and advocate and mediator. It's not for us to predetermine how they navigate that difficult terrain. Yeah. Yeah, we we would often term them secret believers. Mm-hmm. And those secret believers, there's reasons that I think any thinking person would accept as valid reasons for being secret. Mm-hmm. Back a long time ago, when I was a young man, very young man, my first mission trip was spent some time in southern Sudan uh, before the Civil War. So you know how many years ago it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this little village named Tarit. And Tarit was later really a central part of a civil war uh, situation where Islamic uh, forces came into the city and changed it. It was a Christian town. Mm -hmm. Long story short is my first year with uh, the Ministry of Open Doors, uh, we brought in a woman who had been a Sudanese refugee from the civil war, talked about what the situation was like, talked about how her whole family had been sort of split up and looked around. And it turned out she was from the village of Torit. And so right after I was there and the Civil War started a couple of years later, uh, her father was forced to convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. He was uh, forced on threat of his children being killed. She was one of them in particular. Uh, later, they all fled to refugee camps because as it went back and forth, they were all separated. But she explained, she said, it was a public Islamic front that my father put on. Mm -hmm. But when he would come back into the home, we were all trained in the Bible. We were all taught about Jesus. And so being this secret believer was a way to preserve and a way to to maintain. Now they've gone on to, you know, all separated, uh, do different things for Christ. But that's probably not going to make the final cut. But (laughs) Well, you know, I was telling Steve this earlier when I was doing interviews in in Jordan. Mm Mm-hmm where Islam and Islamic religious identity is your union card. Without it, you don't have any role in society. And yet there are a lot of different minority groups that are on shaky ground. What do they do? They simply take on 
that identity. Mm-hmm. And as we would do interviews and probe, we, we found people who were Druze, one of those ancient heretical yeah. groups, uh, widespread, who were also a Hafez, which meant they had memorized the entire Quran and had become mayor of their town. And one fellow was a millionaire, and uh, he was known to everyone as Hafez so-and-so. He was a, a staunch Islamic Sunni Orthodox pillar of society. In fact, he was a born-again believer who had had dreams and visions of Jesus when he almost died on the operating table and was leading 70 small groups of people who were studying God's Word. But his rite of passage, to be able to survive in that society, he had to be known as a solid Orthodox Muslim. Even Shiites took on that that, uh, persona. You know, you would ask them, they say, we're part of the al Al Nabi. The Al Al Nabi meant the family of the prophet. That was a roundabout way of saying we're Shiites. In other words, they subscribed to Ali being the head because yeah. he was from the family of the prophet. But in every other appearance, they were Orthodox Sunni Muslims because it was required in that society. So that's, again, another Achilles heel, I think, of Islam is that if you pressure people to one religious identity, you're going to get hypocrisy, you're going to get uh, duplicity, you're going to get a lot of subversion under the Mm -hmm. surface. And after a while, true religion becomes uh, inconceivable. Because why would anyone really believe this? Because the government's pushing it. Yeah. Well, so as you you think back and, and think now about what's happening in the Middle East, you know, there's these these movements, these Abraham Accords. I'd love your take on those, if you have one, the political peace treaties with oh, Israel that, yeah, in yeah. these late... Uh, yeah, I'm hopeful. I don't like seeing Iran being cornered and being vilified as the bad guy because it looks like it's just setting the stage for an apocalyptic confrontation. I do like seeing Israel <laughs> having some uh, Muslim trading partners and some... Uh, normalization of relations. I think that can only benefit both sides. I long for and pray for the day when they have it with Iran as well, when this ideological opposition to the state of Israel is over Mm. and they can see each other as different, simply different uh, faith traditions living in the same part of the world. So that's my take on that. It, It certainly is a breakthrough and, uh, and I'm, again, I'm happy both for Israel and for those nations that uh, that have signed on to that. And I hope it will spread. But I hope it isn't limited. I hope it doesn't play further into this Arab-Persian Cold War. Mm. That's really a very hot war yeah, that's, that's being played out Yemen. in Yemen yep. and all the deaths. Yep. And, you know, sadly, part of the history of colonialism is, you know, you divide and conquer. And the Arab world, the Muslim world, I should say, has been very easy to divide and conquer because they have violence is actually sown into the, uh, it's a legitimate moral response to certain affronts. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they're easy to divide and conquer. But it's a tragedy, nonetheless. I would say, you know, from my perspective a little bit, uh, and, you know, as I think about it, the never bad thing to work for peace Never a bad thing. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's a, 
easy way to look at it. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that there's a larger narrative being played out. There's this biblical, prophetic, and other narrative being played out. And who knows? I think of the word amazed sometimes. Um, Sometimes we, we say, I'm amazed, but then we go ahead and fill in the gaps of what we think might happen. I'm amazed. I have no words for what is taking place in some of these things. And we can only say that God is, God is at work. Yeah. He's doing something larger than we can imagine. Yeah. And, uh, and some of this is possibly part of that. Yeah, and hopefully we'll see a change at the grassroots level because it's one thing for governments to sign accords and uh, it's another thing for the people to really see things differently. And to that end, I mean, Israel has its own internal issues between the Orthodox and the secular communities, very different worldviews. And uh, where that goes is going to be uh, fascinatingly tragic, I think, to watch in the years ahead. Yeah. Well, we keep our eye on Israel. We keep our eye on our neighbors. We pray and we ask God to continue to bring about salvation of people. And we want the gospel to go forward to every Jew and Gentile in the land. And the reality is we, we also work for the kingdom at each stage of the game. We're not passive to step by. We do want to bless Israel and her neighbors uh, in the name of Jesus. So, Well, I think, Carl, and this is maybe just my quirky way of engaging the phenomenon of Israel, is that when I look at Israel, I look at the Jewish people, I think God has given us a mirror. We look at them and we see ourselves and all of the glorious potential we have and all of the foolishness and racism and foibles and frustration and injustices. It's all there, but it's not them. It's it's us. They're just the ones that God chose to use to reveal to us our need for him. Yeah. And so uh, I feel a great affinity and a love for, as well as a uh, disdain for the people of Israel, because I see in them myself Mm. and our weaknesses, Mm. our failures, but our great potential. And uh, I pray for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, for God's blessings in and through them. Yeah. Well, amen. David Garrison, thank you. This has been a, it's been a treat. It's been a treat for me. It's been a treat for our listeners. And, uh, I'm super grateful for the opportunity to just do this with you. Thank Thank you, you brother. It's been a pleasure. Hello, my name is Rachel Carmen, and I want to invite you to come over and listen to my podcast. It's called Real Refreshment. For years and years as a young mother, I chased after the wind, thinking that the world could offer me the refreshment I longed for. But it was only when I discovered it in the person of Jesus Christ that I really found refreshment. Come on over and join me as we dig into Bible study. I'll see you there.